Welcome to the latest podcast from Greyfriars Church in Reading. Our vision is to see Reading transformed by the love and power of Jesus. You can find out more on our website, greyfriars.org.uk. Enjoy. Uh, I've mentioned before uh, in uh, a sermon at Greyfriars, a couple, I think, in fact, that I'm a bit of a nerd. And I say that with real pride. Uh, But one of the ways that kind of my nerdiness manifests itself uh, is that I find physics uh, really quite interesting. Uh, And one of the ways uh, that this kind of displayed itself was uh, when Steph, my wife, uh, when we were uh, first dating, uh, I spent one of our evenings dating uh, explaining to her uh, a physics experiment that I thought was particularly interesting. And despite that, she still married me, uh, and so I've not learned my lesson. So I thought this morning I'd have another go uh, and explain to you all something about physics that I find fascinating. And just, just wait with me for a moment, because maybe by the end of it you'll find this interesting as well. Because it's this, uh, in physics there are two main frameworks for thinking about how the universe works. The first one is called General Relativity, uh, of Albert Einstein fame, Uh, and physicists have found that general relativity is really useful, particularly when thinking about big things, like galaxies and stars and planets. But the second framework is called Quantum Mechanics, and it's really good as well, but it's particularly good Uh, thinking about small things uh, like atoms and molecules. But what's really interesting is that these these two frameworks are really good, but they don't play very well together. They both work, but they don't really work at the same time or in the same place. And so it's left physicists looking for kind of a third option, a third alternative, a so-called theory of everything. The idea is that there's there's a theory out there, there's a framework out there that would work in every situation. It would be uh, applicable to every problem and it would answer every question that physics has to ask. You can understand the appeal of looking for a theory like that, can't you? A theory that explains everything, an all-encompassing model. That sounds pretty useful. And so physicists are continuing the search for just such a thing. And, you know, I was thinking about this uh, over this last week as I've been reading and studying James chapter 2. Because I've been thinking about how you and I do have a theory of everything when it comes to living a good life. We have a theory of everything when it comes to living a godly life. Because you might remember, if you've ever read the Gospels, that there's a moment when someone comes to Jesus and, and they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is. And Jesus responds to them by saying this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's Jesus' theory of everything. And you may have picked up the second half of it in our passage from James this morning. We want to live well, don't we? And if we're followers of Jesus, we want to follow him faithfully. But the question that that raises, of course, is how? How are we to live well? Well, Jesus has a theory of everything and it's, it's this. Love God and love your neighbour. That, says Jesus, covers the lot. It answers every question. But it's perhaps easily said, isn't it? But it's not so easily done. And so James in his book, in this book we're spending these weeks studying together, James is going to help us apply this theory of everything into different specific examples of how Jesus calls his people to live. As we heard last week, James is going to help us to be doers of God's word, people who live what they hear God calling them to do. And so he begins this journey significantly in these verses that we just read and with a practical application of how you and I are to love our neighbours, how we're to apply this theory, this rule, this way of being. And so I'd like to spend our time this morning thinking about James's application. And what we'll discover not, is not just his application, but we'll find that along the way, James makes an important implication that I want us to touch on as well. There's an application and an implication. So let's get to it. And firstly, let's look at James's application. And it's quite simply summed up in verse one, if you've got that open in front of you. He says this, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. If you and I are to live well by loving our neighbours, we can't be the sorts of people that give priority to some over others. Now, the word that James uses here for favouritism is significant because it's a word that was used to talk about making judgments about people based on external factors. The sort of external factors that everyone in the world would have used. But what James is saying specifically here is that Christians can't use the criteria that the world uses to shape how we as followers of Jesus Christ, make decisions about other people. He's saying that we can't treat people unfairly because of their social status or their race, their gender or their skill set, their appearance or their success. And to do that, James says, would be utterly incompatible with the Christian faith. You can't follow Jesus, and at the same time, judge the people around you 
in the same way that the world judges them, preferring some and showing contempt to others. Particularly within the family of the church, because that's where James is is applying uh, this principle. There is no room for this sort of thinking. It's been said before that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all equal before Jesus. Or to quote St. Paul, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. As James says, we can't show favoritism and so it matters how we treat people. And particularly it matters how we treat those people that the world sees as less important. And so the question for you and I as Christians, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the question for for us as we long to live the good life is this. How do we treat people who can't do anything for us? That the world sees as less important. How do we treat those people who can't do anything for us? That is the test. That's what it comes down to. That's where this really matters. I remember I was once at a uh, Christian event at at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, And you may know that uh, many of the seats at the Royal Albert Hall are are owned by different people. And so uh, when an event happens there, sometimes they have to write to the owners of those seats and ask permission to use them. And one of those boxes that's owned by someone is is the Royal Box. Uh, The organisers had to write to the Queen in order to ask permission to use those seats uh, for this event. And so that's what they did. They wrote to the Queen and, and they got a letter back. Uh, And the Queen responded by saying that, of course, they could use the royal box, uh, but they should give those seats uh, to the most distinguished guests who would be attending. And so what the organisers of this event did was they decided to give those tickets away uh, for free uh, to a group of ex-offenders who otherwise wouldn't have been able to go to the conference, who wouldn't have been able to be there at all. And that's the sort of thing that we're to do. We're not to to raise up those people that the world sees as important or valuable, but we're to treat everyone with love and dignity and care. We're to love and look out for those who can't do anything for us in return. And so the challenge Uh, for you and for me is how are we doing that? How are we doing that in our day-to-day lives? Who are the people in your life that God is giving you the opportunity to love as you would want to be loved yourself, even though they can't repay you for it? how, How are we loving the poor in our town, in our country and in our world. You know, now perhaps more than ever as we find ourselves once again in the depths of a national lockdown, on the back 
of what feels like so many weeks and months of national lockdown. Now is a time where there are people, so many people around us who are in desperate need of loving service. And maybe at the moment you're one of the fortunate ones, you find yourself with surplus resources, maybe in terms of time or in terms of money or or whatever it is, and you could consider giving some of those resources away to support the poor in our community, uh, to support some of the, the local charities, the amazing charities in Reading who are on the ground serving people who need it most, some of those charities that Greyfriars partners with. Uh, If you want to find out more about some of the ways you might be able to get involved, if you don't know, head to our website, head to the Transform Reading website as well. And and there you'll find all sorts of amazing organisations that at this time uh, you could bless with your resources. How are we loving the poor who can't repay us? How are we loving the lonely who can't repay us? Are there people who you know in this isolated time that needs someone to reach out to them and be a friend. And maybe, maybe you're aware that they don't have that because other people are resisting. Maybe you yourself have resisted up to now because, you know, let's just be real. There are people out there who might be unpleasant or difficult or challenging. And yet God is calling you to love them. He's calling you to love them, even though you won't receive love or comfort or the kind of socialising in return that you want. And can I be really honest with you? That's an area that I've really struggled throughout my entire life. To love those who, for all the wrong worldly reasons, I find it difficult to love. That's been a real challenge for me. So as, as I was preparing to preach Uh, this week as I was reading this passage, this challenge hit me like a ton of bricks. The call to love those sacrificially who I don't naturally want to, to see them as God sees them, to love them as I would want to be loved. So I know that I need in response to this to to find accountability, to make sure that I do that, to to make sure that I choose a different path and to live well. How are we caring for, loving the lonely? What about those who are less privileged than you? How are we loving them? You know, in this season, many of us have been learning particularly about the privilege we enjoy because of our race or our gender or our upbringing. And so James's challenge to us is to use that privilege to raise up and release those who don't share the same position that we do and to, to not hold on to that privilege when we become aware of it. Believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. That's, uh, that's James's application of this theory of everything to love our neighbour. But you'll remember, as well as an application, there's also an important implication in these verses that I want to really quickly touch upon, and it's to do with our attitude towards money. Because you would have noticed in these verses that, that James's application is very specifically to do with 
favoritism shown towards those with more or less wealth. Now, he says that Christians shouldn't allow uh, someone's financial position to impact how we treat them. But I think there's a deeper point here that James is making, and he's going to go on in the book later to make again. And it's this. Money is an inherently dangerous thing for the Christian. Did you notice how in verse 5, James talks about how God has chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom of God? And that's a consistent theme, the poor inheriting the kingdom throughout this book, throughout the teaching of Jesus and throughout the teaching of his disciples. And that isn't to say that rich people can't be Christians. Of course, it's not to say that. But we do perhaps need to remember that the Bible teaches us that it is harder, it can be harder for those who are rich to follow Jesus. That more often than not, wealth won't lead us towards God. But as verses 6 and 7 show us, it will lead us towards oppressing and persecuting God's church. It will lead us away from God. Because do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And elsewhere he says you cannot serve both God and money. And if we're honest, I think we have a tendency to to hear verses like that, to hear challenges like we see in James and just to try and brush them away, to brush them under the carpet, to make up excuses, to explain why it doesn't mean what it means. But this morning I wonder if you and I, if we can all hear this challenge for a moment. It isn't easy to be a Christian and to be wealthy. Why? Well, I think the reason or part of the reason is that money can trick us into thinking that we're in control. Because money in our world allows us to a certain extent to control our destinies, to control where we live, to control what we do, doesn't it? It makes us think that we don't need to trust anymore, that we don't need to trust God because we can trust money instead. And C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia book, said this about money. He said that money is valued chiefly as a defence against chance. Put another way, money is something that we trust instead of God. It's something that we put in God's place. It's something that we make an idol out of. And when that happens, when we're rich perhaps and feel that temptation and that draw, what it does is it money draws us away from God. Perhaps slowly and gradually over time, but all too often inevitably. When our first concern is money, it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. And so I don't want to dwell on this for too much longer, but, but as I was preparing this week, I just had a real sense in my spirit that th this was important for us to hear. 
And so my question is this, and I'll leave you with, with this on this point. What is your relationship with money? Because most of us tuning in on our devices this morning from our homes are wealthy by any standard. And so is money in charge of your life or is God? Do you care more about your wealth than loving your neighbour? Maybe we need to take some time this week to really ask those questions again. It hit me like a ton of bricks, so I know I need to ask it. As followers of Jesus, you and I are to love our neighbours as ourselves. We're to love in the same way that we were first loved by God, not because we could do anything for him, not because we were worthy of it, but because God models to us sacrificial love, love for the sake of others. And so this morning, my question once more is, how are you doing at loving? How are you treating those who can't do anything for you? Perhaps particularly, how does your love show up in your wallet and on your bank statement and through your lifestyle? Now, I'm not going to pretend these are uh, easy questions, that these are quick questions to answer and that these questions aren't difficult and awkward and uncomfortable. You know, these aren't easy things to talk about or to think about, to listen uh, about, but they are the values of Christ's kingdom. They are the nuts and bolts on what it means to love. This is what we're called to. If you and I are to, are to pick up our cross and to follow our King Jesus, to live and to love well.